Hi, I'm Annalisa. I'm Maggie. And I'm Nicole. And this is Unconditional, the podcast. Welcome to the latest episode of Unconditional, the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about emotional support animals. And we have lots of questions that are commonly asked that we've been asked many times. And we're just going to run through and give you the the basics on what an emotional support animal is and how you can get one. All right. So um, jumping right in, um, generally, a lot of the time people ask what is an emotional support animal? What um, classifies an emotional support animal as such? And how, what are the differences between an ESA and a service dog, you know, both on the legal spectrum and both, uh, or, and also with functionality? Hmm. Yeah, that's by far the most common question. And there's so much confusion even amongst other clinicians. So before I answer the question, I'm going to explain the reason that I know so much about emotional support animals is because I have a certificate in animal assisted therapy, and I'm currently working on a certification in animal assisted play therapy. So in doing that, I have had many opportunities to explore both in the research and among other clinicians, um, what is a therapy animal? So we're talking about three different classifications, right? I work with a therapy animal, Benji the dog, (laughs) and Benji is trained to support me in my work, helping other humans to heal from mental health concerns. Right. So he's one dog who supports lots of people with the help of a professional human. There is no law saying that Benji is what he is. Therapy animals are not classified in any um, formal or official way. Service animals and emotional support animals, on the other hand, they, they do have specific classifications by law. So a service animal we've we've seen these animals all over the country they've been protected since well i'm sorry i want to use the language appropriately here the human handler who has the service animal is protected by the americans with disabilities act and has been since 1990 and these animals are almost always dogs and that's by law there are also miniature horses who can be trained as official service animals and that is it you will never meet a service animal who is an alligator or a fish or whatever else. (laughs) They're always going to be dogs or miniature horses. And those service animals are working animals that have been trained to perform a specific task to assist a person with a disability. Usually one specific task, maybe more. Um, But so, you know, classic example, a a person with, um, uh, like a disability around their vision may need a a dog to help guide them in public spaces. Um, A person who has PTSD may need um, a service animal who's trained to detect when they're about to have a panic attack. In common public places, you know, train stations, airports, um, when you see commonly when you see a service animal, they do have one of those vests that say, you know, 
um, do not pet, I am working, um, you know. So I guess it's like a two-parting, two-parted question. Um, are all um, like therapy animals, service animals, and emotional support animals required to have some sort of vest that displays that? Um, is it just service animals? Yeah, so there is no law saying these animals have to wear a specific vest or have a, a badge. And um, when we get to the point of talking about emotional support animals, I'll, I'll clarify that folks trying to sell you a vest are probably fraudulent. Um, but backing up to service animals, it, it actually is just a, a best practice to make sure that the animal has clear markings and, and has that, you know, that little phrase, do not approach, I'm working. Um, and that is for the protection of the person who, who's handling the dog, who needs the task that they're trained to perform. And it's also from an ethical standpoint, it's good for the animal. Working animals, you know, they're, they're really only supposed to be working for a certain number of hours per day and a certain number of days per week, um, just in terms of like the ethics around uh, the five freedoms of, of bringing animals into human work. And it takes energy and attention, right? It is hard work for these animals to do this job. And so we shouldn't be distracting them from what they're trying to do, which is life-saving work, right? So it's, it's best practice for, for them to have a vest, but it's not required for them to have a vest. And in fact, um, if you see someone come into your place of business and they have an animal, you can ask, excuse me, you can ask, is this animal trained to perform a specific task protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act? Write that down because that is the only thing you can say. You cannot ask, do you have a disability? Tell me what it is. You can't ask, show me the badge or show me your paperwork, prove to me you're disabled. That is messed up. You can't do that. <laughs> and you'll get in trouble. Walks, walks up to the dog. Can I see some identification, please? <laughs> right. Never. I didn't expect it's going to happen. No, you just want to ask, you know, is this animal trained to perform a task that's protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act? That's all you can say. And, and you take the yes or the no with grace because most people are not trying to, you know, buck the system. Right. It's only a, a very small community, which is now that's interesting because that's now why, you know, there are such strict rules because there were people taking advantage of that. And like you said, um, using a trying to use an alligator as a service animal, which is um, interesting and I think kind of contradictory a little bit. Um, All right. So that that's a good segue into talking about emotional support animals, because that's where a lot of this fuzziness where, where the gray area is. So an emotional support animal is an animal that can be reasonably accommodated for a person who has some form of psychological disability. And I'm using that language intentionally because that's the language in the Federal Fair Housing Act, which is the only law that protects people who need emotional support animals. Um, so an ESA provides comfort to help relieve a symptom or an effect of a person's psychological disability. They're not considered a pet and they actually are not restricted by species. And that is where the nonsense with the emotional support alligator came from. That apparently it really happened. I don't know if that's like an urban legend or whatever, 
Um, someone tried to take an emotional support alligator onto an airplane. I don't know. I hope that's not real. Um, but they're different from a service animal. When it comes to having an emotional support animal, um, is there a requirement for having the animal trained? Um, is, you know, because as a therapy animal, Benji is trained. Um, and in most circumstances, at least I would say when I do see a support animal or a service animal, um, they usually are pretty well behaved. Um, so I'm sure there's kind of like a mm. basic level of, of mm, what am I trying to say, uh, politeness <laughs> for a dog to have to, to fit into that realm. Yeah, I think that's the a perfect word, actually. We want our working animals to be polite, absolutely. Um, no, there, there actually isn't a requirement that emotional support animals be trained in a specific way. There's a best practice, of course. When I'm working with clients who are trying to obtain an ESA, I'll talk to them about, you know, if you want the animal to truly be supportive to you, supportive to your emotional needs, you probably want a specific type of animal. You want to have a certain type of bond. And can you bond with an animal that isn't housebroken or, you know, that doesn't like people, doesn't, doesn't want to be around you, right? It's, if you want the ESA to do a specific job, then it's probably a best practice to get one that, and I'm, I'm thinking about dogs in particular that have gone through the canine good citizen training, have passed the test by the American Kennel Club, right, and are able to, um, you know, to, to be a great member of your household, even if they're not a pet. So what I'm hearing is it's, it's also important when, when trying to implement an emotional support animal into your life, it's a good idea to kind of cater to the animal itself and its personality and its quirks and what it likes and what it doesn't like. Like you said, obviously, if an animal doesn't like people, um, it's not going to be, you know, the best idea to, to have them working in a public setting. Um, Cause I, I know a lot of, a lot of people have asked if you need, like, you know, like you said, identification or, or a specific uh, certificate that you need signed by somebody, you know, head honcho of, of the dogs. Um, but who is that? <laughs> so that's interesting um, that they don't actually, it's not a requirement, but it's a recommendation, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And, and keep in mind that because emotional support animals or rather the human that has the emotional support animal is only protected by the Federal Fair Housing Act, the only place you can have an ESA is in your home. You can no longer travel with an ESA. Um, there used to be a, a law that applied to um, traveling by air, but in December of 2020, that was overturned and we can no longer uh, take our emotional support animals onto planes and trains um, unless the, the company specifically allows that, but there's no legal protection for that anymore. Service animals can absolutely be taken in any public space, right? Because that is, again, because they're, they're protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act, but ESAs are different. So you can only have them at home. You still want a polite, well-trained animal in your home, I would hope. And because the people who have emotional support animals are typically 
going through some sort of therapeutic process, right? They're seeing a counselor outside the home. Um, they're, you know, they're learning all the different ways that the ESA can be part of their mental well-being, and so they're continuing to train and care for the animal. Um, so I'm saying, do get a great animal that's well-trained. No, you're not required by law. <laughs> Feeling anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed? Join local Montgomery County author and animal-assisted therapist, Annalisa Smithson, for a 21-day journey of compassionate, playful self-discovery. Readers will relish this timely, easy-to-digest pilgrimage of self-love, which Smithson offers through 21 snack-sized chapters that can be easily digested before breakfast. Unconditional Learning to Love Your Authentic Self is available now on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and hardback versions. Get your copy today. Go to AnnaliseSmithson.com for more information or find Unconditional on Amazon. It's interesting. It's we're doing good with segues because it's a good segue into what are the rules for for obtaining an emotional support animal and um, who who can write the emotional support animal recommendation letter. Um, why is it that you can't just go out and have Joe Schmo write a letter for just anybody? Um, you know, to be able to have their, their, their dog or their cat in an apartment that maybe doesn't allow pets. So in order to get an emotional support animal, you have to be evaluated by a licensed medical or mental health professional. So that means you can go to your doctor, your primary care physician, um, and you can request a letter. They may or may not do that for you. Um, Usually the, the best folks to, to go to for this evaluation are animal assisted therapists or forensic psychologists. We're, we're really the two groups that are appropriately trained around all the ins and outs of emotional support animals. So when you come here to Unleash Counseling for an ESA letter, there's three parts to the evaluation. Um, First, we're going to assess for the disability in question, right? We're, we're going to be asking, does this disability cause a need that an ESA can alleviate? And that might be screenings for PTSD. It might be screenings for depression or anxiety. Um, I'm not sure, right? Until you come and we start talking about what's going on, and then we do the, the appropriate assessment for your mental health. Then the next part of it is assessing for the ability to provide adequate care for the animal. And if the client is unable to care for the animal, that doesn't mean it's a no-go. That means we're gonna talk about a plan for figuring out how to be ethical and really give the animal the care they need when they join your household. So is there someone else in the house that can help, right? Do you have the funds to be able to take them to the vet and get them all the, the shots they need? Right? Are you, have you worked it into your budget to figure out their food and toys and whatever else? Um, and that's coming from um, 
my training around the five freedoms of animal welfare. So as an animal assisted therapist, this is something I've committed to. This is a globally recognized gold standard for animal welfare. Um, and, and it's basically saying that we are going to ensure that any animals we work with or interact with at home or at work, um, their physical and mental well-being is, is taken care of. So that's freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from discomfort, freedom from pain, injury, and disease, um, and freedom to express normal and natural behavior, and freedom from fear. And then the third part of the evaluation is psychoeducation. So we talk about exactly what we're talking about here. What is the difference between a service animal and an ESA? And what are your rights and responsibilities as the client, right? So it is your responsibility to know that you can no longer take your ESA on aircraft, as an example. Another big question that we get a lot from um, particular or from certain inquiries is, um, you know, why can't I just have the letter uh, why do I need to be doing therapy as well? Um, it's a very common misconception that, uh, you know, the letter is just handed off and then, you know, you just have that unspoken <laughs> title of owning an ESA. Um, it's really not like that. It's a continuing process that, that you know, you're, you're going to develop skills and education on. Yeah, it's, that's a really good point. I'm glad you said that. It's important for people to keep in mind that an emotional support animal cannot be your only tool or treatment for your mental health care, right? And I'll be frank, instead of Lisa for the moment, if you come in with major depressive disorder and you have suicidal ideation, I can't let you leave here with an ESA letter knowing that that's the only thing you're doing to care for your depression or to, to relieve your depression because it's deadly, right? You're, you would be in serious danger, right? Of dying by suicide. We have to continue with the rest of the mental health treatment. So it doesn't have to be with me. I, I do not require people who come in for ESA evaluations to do therapy with me. I may refer them to another counselor who's more appropriate or a psychologist or psychiatrist or whomever, right? It's, it's so different. Mental health care is so different for everybody. I just want to know that the ESA is going to be one of many tools in your toolbox. Nicely put. Now, kind of to tie it all up in a pretty little box, um, you say you, you go through the process, you go through the assessment, you have the letter. Um, a lot of people want to know, should an ESA be a particular breed or a particular weight? Um, a lot of people have these questions. Um, you know, is a German Shepherd better for it than a Golden Doodle? Um, what are your thoughts on that? And um, when it comes to landlords and having restrictions, can they put a restriction on uh, what type of uh, dog it could be, uh, how, you know, how much the dog weighs, etc. Yeah, your, your landlord or landlady cannot put a restriction um, on your emotional support animal. And that is because it's not a pet, right? It's an ESA, it's a working animal. Um, they also can't charge you a pet fee for the same reason. Right? So that's, that's part of why the Federal Fair Housing Act 
um, is articulated the way it is to protect people who need an ESA. And, you know, it, it wouldn't be fair to, to treat them like they have a pet coming into the house. It's not what it is. Um, and as for the, the type of animal or the breed of the animal, it's whatever makes the most sense for you, right? If, if caring for a small dog is going to make more sense in terms of being able to walk them and, you know, have, having the strength to hold onto the leash and all of that, go for a small animal, small dog or a cat. Um, if having a big dog is part of what helps you feel secure and comfortable and gets you through the anxiety attacks, go for a big dog. Really, there's, I mean, you can, you can Google it and people will say like, oh, the, um, what is the dog that I'm in love with right now? Cavalier, uh, King Charles, Spaniels. I love them so much. And they're the ones that are like most famous for being the best type of, of, um, we'll call it a therapeutic breed because they're so calm and cuddly and sweet. But you could say that about so many different breeds. So it's really your own preference. All right. So they can't put, landlords can't put restrictions on an ESA and they can't charge extra fees. Now, remember, we're not talking about just, you know, your standard dog. If, if your landlord is charging you $50 extra because you have a dog, that's different from being an ESA. <laughs> just a side note, yeah. everybody. Um, so we, we covered how, you know, ESAs aren't necessarily permitted in public places. Service animals are the ones that are permitted to travel with their handlers. Um, are there any special circumstances, any, you know, special loopholes that landlords don't need to comply with these requests to have ESAs um, or, you know, comply with providing the protection of the Fair Housing Act? Uh, are there any, is there any red tape that landlords can cut mm -hmm. through for, for that, for those reasons? You know, that would be a question for a lawyer. Uh, I'm not aware of any, um, but I, I would say, you know, if there's concern, go down to legal aid and, and talk to one of the lawyers about your rights. Um, I'll also add, not only am I not a lawyer, I'm also not a veterinarian. And so when people come and they, they do the emotional support animal assessments, I'm assessing the human for the need for an ESA. I don't assess the animal itself. And, and in fact, I shouldn't because I'm, I'm not a vet, I'm not a behavior specialist, anything like that. Um, so it's not just like one visit and then hit the SBCA and, and grab your animal, right? There's all different professionals that you should lean on to help you make this transition into being a handler for an ESA. Right. So, I mean, clearly uh, it's a, it's a, it's quite a responsibility and there are a lot of uh, elements that go into having an ESA, you know, maintaining, going to therapy, you know, regularly, um, promising that you're going to be taking care of them. It's a lot. Um, and that's why the process to obtain an ESA is the way it is. Um, we need to make sure that uh, the animal is being well taken care of as well as um, the client and that they're both in, you know, the best state of well-being they can be. And all that being said, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I think it's worth jumping through all those hoops. It, you know, it, if it's the right fit for you to have an ESA, I think it's worth it because animals can be remarkably healing, right? The bond that you have with your ESA can help in so many ways from 
practicing self-care to um, using techniques to reduce anxiety or to reduce symptoms of depression, um, to, to actually having an animal that is trained to notice specific symptoms and alert you to it, right? There's, there's just tons and tons of reasons. So I don't mean to make it sound like <laughs> this is incredibly challenging. Don't do it unless you have an app. Right. It really is worth exploring. Yes. The payoff is worth it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Having that co that co-companion um at your side, especially going through, you know, mental and psychological issues is gonna make it, you know, that much more worthwhile when you can overcome those issues. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Maggie. This was such a thorough conversation. I hope people learned a lot about ESAs. Yes, it was great and very, um, very intuitive. So uh, if you do have any other questions about ESAs, feel free to let us know, uh, reach out to us, you know, social media, email. Um, otherwise, see you next time. <laughs>